Malcolm Geitz will be known to Church Times readers as the author of our weekly Poets' Corner column. He is the chaplain of Girton College, Cambridge, and a poet, teacher, and musician. Malcolm's latest book, published by Canterbury Press, is called Love Remember, 40 Poems of Loss, Lament and Hope. It is, Malcolm says, written to give voice both to love and to lamentation, to find expression for grief without losing hope, to help us honour the dead with tears, yet still to glimpse through those tears the light of resurrection. Malcolm came to the Church Times offices this week to talk more about the book. If you don't already subscribe to the Church Times and would like to read Malcolm's column each week, along with a host of news, features and reviews, go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe, where you can get 10 issues for £10. Malcolm, can you just give us some of the background as to how Love Remember came about? Well, it was a, a mixture of things. I'm a parish priest and so I and as well as a, I have been a parish priest as well as a college chaplain and so I've often taken funerals and realised what a long journey grief is and and sometimes felt the need for just some some deeper wells to draw from. Uh, I mean, I, I, I said at the beginning that part of the, the raison d'etre to the book was a, a bit of a reaction to the way in which uh, I think we've succumbed to a kind of common social pressure to, to rebrand all funerals as celebrations, to, to rush, as it were, immediately to consolation, to to sort of sometimes there's not even a coffin in the in the you know as it were to simply avert the eyes from death to be to be complicit in, in denial and denial is a natural part of grief but we have to get beyond it and it seems to me you know when we've got the cross and the resurrection right at the heart of our faith we shouldn't be shying away f- from it I say in the, in the introduction that it was all rather summed up in the the almost the ubiquity now of this little extract from a sermon of Henry Scott Holland's, usually billed as a poem, um, uh, though it's not a poem, um, you know, which goes, you know, death is nothing at all, and I've just slipped away into the next room, make a cup of tea, it'll all be fine, you know, keep on celebrating. And um, I felt there was something wrong wrong with that. I was very pleased, of course, when I finally went back to the context to discover that's not what Henry Scott Holland is saying at all. He's saying that is one of the things we want to feel, but we also know this is a dreadful breach in, in, in all that's given us joy. This is a, a kind of a hideous cut across the very channels of our life and communication. And we need to confront that gap and that loss and that the scripture helps us to do that. And of course, he brings those experiences of loss on the one hand and that yearning for hope or longing for consolation on the other together, as he should do, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But what we get in death is nothing at all. It's, it's a bit like sort of somebody copying out the answer to a sum they haven't done yet, you know. <laughs> and um, I, I felt we could do better than that. You know, we've got, obviously we've got all the great resources of scripture, but we've got Shakespeare and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Tennyson and, uh, you know. Um, we've got a, uh, we're a nation of poets and perhaps those poets could help us to be more honest both about the darkness and the light, you know, the depths and the heights of our grief, to give that a bit more voice than mm. just a, a few platitudes on a glossy card. What do you think's behind that denial about death? Is, is that because the, in, in the wider culture where perhaps there's been a loss in, of belief in God and yeah. um, eternity, that there's a, just a sheer horror at um, things ending? Yeah, I think there are two reasons why we've tended to repress people's tears as it were or be embarrassed by grief and want to move forward one i think is actually historical because if you go back into victorian times obviously they did death you know in spades and they they you know had 40 days of mourning and you had special things to wear and black-edged morning stationery and there was no shying away from it and i think that was actually very therapeutic and very good 
I think socially and historically, the reason why we suddenly started going completely for the stiff upper lip and uh, was actually the sheer uh, scale of bereavement in the wake of the First World War. Well, actually, the, the flu pandemic and then the First World War. There was just, it, there was a feeling that we couldn't cope as a society, that if everybody was given their full allotment of grieving time, when all their neighbours were grieving too, we would just cease to function. So we got this thing, we've got to get on with life and, and, and get on, but somehow we've never quite recovered from that, right. that position. We're not in that, you know, we don't need to be quite so hasty or dismissive or, or um, stiff upper, upper lipped about it. So I think that was one reason. But of course, after that, you also got... Um, a receding, I think a, a temporary receding, as it were, in the tides of, of faith, or at least publicly held faith. And so people, the less they were able to grasp the power of the resurrection hope, then by the same token, the less they were able to face the grave and gate of death, because without faith it was only a grave and not a gate. Mm. <laughs> so. And, but I think it's really incumbent on, on us uh, who have this faith in the light of the hope that we hold, which we ho hold on behalf of everybody, you know, as in Adam all day, even saying Christ shall all be made alive. Because we can hope on people's behalf, we can also grieve on their behalf. And, you know, the paradox is there, isn't it, in Jesus weeping, you know, the shortest sentence in the scripture, you know, when he hears of the death of Lazarus, Jesus wept. Even though he knows he will raise Lazarus even in this life in this world, and even though he knows that he is the resurrection and the life, he still knows, you know, as the, the poet Virgil said, St. Rerum Lacrimae, the tears of things. And grieving is the, a profound part of being human. And you write in the introduction to Love Remember, you're seeking to help us honour the dead with tears, yet still to glimpse through those tears the light of resurrection. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's kind of both and, mm -hmm. and not I, I, either or. I call the book Love, Remember, I mean, it's a direct uh, quotation from, from, from Hamlet. It's mm. uh, Ophelia giving out rosemary for remembrance and saying, I pray you love, remember. But I want to put love and remember together because I think grieving is a part of loving. I think when you love somebody, one of the things you, you offer them in the vulnerability of loving is you offer them your own future grief. You're actually saying, I love you enough to know that I will hurt if I lose you. And that's there in the marriage vows, isn't it? You know, to love and to cherish till death us do part. That's very important that, you know, you do the cherishing precisely because you know about the death. You know that unless you're lucky enough to both die in the same plane crash, you know, one of you is going to grieve for the other. And that's part of honouring and loving somebody. Um, so one shouldn't be ashamed of one's tears or hide one's grief. It's, it's an honourable badge of love. It's quite a sensitive question I thought of. Was, I mean, there's, there's the grieving for one's... Um parents say who dies it seems you know in some ways in the natural order of things mm, yeah. at a ripe old age there's grief and loss but you can also look back on a life well lived but for, for people who are who are experiencing the, the sort of unthinkable bereavement of, of a, a loss of a child yeah. or something like that oh yes obviously every in? grief is as different as, as yeah. every person and uh, i tried in the range there are 40 poems in the mm. in the book um actually plus some extras because I, I use Tennyson's In Memoriam as a way of guiding us into each of the sort of stages on the journey of grief. But um, I do specifically deal with these these uh, exceptional and terrible things, particularly perhaps that most appalling thing where a parent buries a child. I actually use a passage from Shakespeare's King John where Constance is grieving for the death of her son Arthur and has this extraordinary thing about how grief itself 
almost becomes the child and puts on the child's clothes and, and walks up and down before her. It's a, it's a really powerful uh, passage. Now, if you say, where is the resurrection? I mean, Shakespeare actually explores that. She imagines trying to meet him in heaven and wonders if... if if, he'd re if she'd recognise him and, and, and is t yearning after what it is that would make this child one and whole in heaven, but still distinctively her child. And she asks all those questions. In fact, there's a strange resonance. I don't suppose Eric, Eric, Eric Clapton knew that the passage in John, St. John, uh, sorry, in, in um, Shakespeare's uh, King John, he might have done, but you know, that very moving song of his, mm. uh, when his son died, his son Connor, you know, would you know my name? You know, if I saw you in heaven, you know, that yearning for that, still that, that personal connection. But it seems to me that there's more than enough to go on in what Jesus says. Both, you know, your brother will rise, not some random blob of consciousness, you know, and some drop going back into the ocean, but your brother will rise. So there'll still be that relationship yeah. there. And the thief is saying to the thief, you know, this, this day you will be with me in paradise or I'm going to prepare a place for you. I think we can have a hope that there is personal relation in attending heaven because we have a God who is himself personal relation. He is a relation of persons, three persons in, 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 in one substance. And, and that he seems to have made us and made his cosmos in order to sustain the reality of loving relationship. So I can't see that, that coming to an end. I see that it almost be maybe the reverse of the case. This may be much more the beginning of how to do and be and, and know in relationship. I, Keats, uh, you know, not not uh, having a Christian faith, but being deeply resonant, you know, began to wonder uh, he he if if this place might not be. He said he didn't want to think of it as some pious Christians called it a veil of tears. Keats said that this place was a veil of soul making. And the souls are made in the very act of loving and of relationship. And so who's this book aimed at? Is it, is it those who are currently grieving, perhaps looking for poems for a funeral or a way to process their grief? Yeah, my, my first thought was to just put into the hands of, of grieving people some poems that might be helpful. I used the metaphor at the beginning uh, and in a way throughout the book of a journey and of often the feeling that you're making this journey alone and that nobody else understands. And... Uh, I wanted to have people to have a sense that others had made this journey and they'd left, as it were, little notes and maps along the way, you know, sort of, that one could find and say, somebody else has been here and knows what this feels like. So uh, I'm aiming it at them. But I'm also very conscious, obviously, as a priest, I'm with people comforting them and I've been through grief myself, but I'm never at the moment that they're feeling it, feeling the grief that they're feeling, you know. How can we, you know, begin to know what's inside another person's heart and mind and I thought well perhaps these poems will help so I did have a sense of the friends of the bereaved I wanted people to be very much to encourage to visit encourage to be there encourage to listen not to be afraid of saying the wrong thing you know people mm. say nothing because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing but in the end it's not the right thing or the wrong thing it's about being a fellow pilgrim it's about being present with somebody I think the being there is much more important and more deeply and permanently remembered by a grieving person than, than what you say or what you don't say. And I mean, even, you know, we're bound to get it wrong. Um, you know, poor old Jesus, you know, go, going there to be with, with Mary and Martha, they have a right go at him, you know, so if you'd been here this morning, really, there, there's a lot of anger and blame and pain and confusion around a bereavement. And if you go as the close friend of the bereaved, some of that is going to fall on you it's not really addressed to you, sure. but that's part of friendship. You just take that, let it roll off your back and carry on being there for someone.
you talk about the Kubler-Ross model for stages of grief yeah. and yes, kind of has limitations. I, I, I mentioned that. There's a bit of a sort of classic thing and it's, it's a bit clinical and it's a bit over-exact in my opinion. And there's a sequence, you know, which starts with um, denial and, you know, and then there's anger and then there's, and there's about five or six stages. And I've actually m known people who've read this kind of in, you know, pop psych books and then been really started beating themselves up saying, oh I've gone done this in the wrong order you know or I haven't got through this or I'm stuck on this you know and my grieving isn't quite right because I'm not moved on quickly enough the next thing and actually of course you're doing all these things all at the same stage but actually uh, what I miss in, in, in that model is is words like hope you know <laughs> words like love actually words like lamentation you know so it's a bit medicalized, I think and uh, it treats grief as though it were a kind of dreadful temporary condition one has to go through and work through the stages of as though they were the stages of development and recovery from some sort of illness and grief is not an illness it feels sometimes like that it feels like oh god i'm going mad you know c.s lewis says in the grief observed nobody told me that grief felt so much like fear you know and like sickness and but um i wanted to instead to have a, a sense of of moving um on a journey, I mean, perhaps one goes back and forth, uh, but through stages. So, so although I acknowledge and write about those those um, Kubler-Ross stages, I actually mine mine is divided into uh, sort of brinks and edges, which is that sense of coming close, you know, knowing that a death is likely to happen, or being on the, um, the 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 sheer shock of loss, the actual kind of shock of the grief. And then I've got a, a section on loving lament, which is about the tears when they come and and rooting them in love. And out of that loving lament, the way memory returns, you know, bitter, bitter, sweet memory. And um, then I do talk about, about letting go, which is one of the... Um, but I think the letting go is not... It's the letting... It's never the letting go of love. It's not even the letting go of grief. It's letting the heart of the person whom you've trusted go to the heart of God and learning to trust God with that person, you know. Mm -hmm. which is very much beautifully what the words of commendation in the Church of England funeral service are about. I always make a real thing of that when I'm doing the service and I get everybody to stand up, it's really say. But I go and, and place my hand on the coffin, as it were, in that moment of kind of touch and solidarity to say this. So there's a section on that. And I follow the section on letting go with a section on receiving. The sense that in the very act of opening your hand to let someone go into God, you begin to receive blessings. Blessings which come out of the very experience of the grief itself. We all know people whom we feel are wiser mm. for the tears they've shed. Um, and we equally flinch back a little bit when, when we meet somebody who seems so shallow and, and not to have really dealt with that side of human life. And then, of course, because it's a Christian book and I'm witnessing, you know, I we, we have this hope, you know, uh, there's a section on hope, the hope of, of resurrection, and of course, you know, that's the, the final section. I think people can use this book in all sorts of ways. I mean, some people may choose to use it as a 40-day journey, perhaps even in, in Lent, you know, through grief, and it can be done in taking the full thing. But um, for others, it may be that it just words and phrases here and there, just a few lines of a poem suddenly crystallise what needs to be said. Um, at the beginning of each section, I quote a little bit of Tennyson's In Memoriam, which is a kind of beautiful poem of lament for his friend Arthur Henry Hallam. It's a kind of a three-year sort of grief journal. And um, there's a wonderful little line where he, just two lines, where he characterises what that what the little verse is. Uh, it's about 105 sections. Or and uh, he says, what he's offering, this is what he says, is, 
short swallow flights of song that dip their wings in tears and skim away. And I hope that's what people will find here, as it were. It's like a little flight of swallows that might dip their wings in your tears and carry a few of them away. For those many of us will know people close to us who've died who haven't been, you know, believing Christians or identified themselves as mm. Christians or may have been um, militant atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, how would this work for those people? Yeah, well, first of all, of course, I think one should, one should um, in funerals or addresses or, you know, closing clergy, one should never pretend something's the case that, that, that you know, if somebody was, was a staunch atheist, you should celebrate the staunch atheism and not sort of, you know, try and put a, a kind of quick veil or mask of sort of post-hoc piety over their face. Uh, so, um, but one should then look for what was good and gracious, if there was something good and gracious in, in, in that atheism. So the first thing to say all about all of that is that, obviously, we, we believe that we're, we're welcomed into heaven by sheer grace, not for any good works that we've done. So we don't have to do these kind of eulogies, bigging people up in the faint hope that God will be impressed, you know. Mm. Now, on the much bigger theological question, I guess a quite pertinent text, in fact, often read at funerals, uh, after I've gone to prepare a place for you, it's, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh to the Father but by me. Now, some people interpret that to mean that unless you've consciously in this life, you know, had this personal relationship and sort of ticked a box that says, mm. you know, I'm a... I'm a believing and born, you know, that you, you don't have any hope. Now, that of course, it's a great thing to have that personal relationship with Jesus. But I don't think the, the very gospel from which that's quoted, John's gospel, entitles us to suggest that uttering a, a cosy Protestant formula uh, is the only way in which we have anything to do with Christ. It's that same gospel that says, uh, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the light that lightens everyone that comes into the world. The gospels are full of examples of Jesus meeting, moving, healing, helping people who don't yet know that he's Messiah and therefore haven't said a wonderful Jesus prayer at some point in their life. Uh, and not least the thief whom he says you're welcome into paradise. Now all of those people I believe come to grace through Christ, that Christ is the door and the way into But I don't think Christ has, as it were, delegated to us the judgment as to who knows him and who doesn't, and whom he has already helped and whom he hasn't. And I think the human mind is itself made and formed in and through the mind of Christ. Now, I still think that, as it were, in Articulo Mortis, you know, now we only know in part, but then we shall know as we are known, you know, we will see face to face. I do believe that everybody in the moment of death will, you know, in a lovely common phrase, meet their maker and see the infinite love of God in the face of Jesus Christ, offering them hope. Now, we have the freedom to response, you know. I'm not a universalist in the sense that I think there's some kind of conveyor belt and we've got nothing to do with it. But I think we are entitled to hope that every person who dies, and especially you know, in our personal hopes of those we love, can have and will have an encounter with the Lord Christ in which they are offered just the same grace on just the same terms of complete grace and freedom that are offered to us. And um, we, we, we have to pray, and that's part of what we do when we pray for them, Blessed, rest eternal, grant unto them, let light perpetual shine on them, that they will accept that. And it's certainly not me for, to, for me to say, end of Matthew, make, Jesus makes it clear, there's a lot of people saying, Lord, Lord, and making religious noises who are in fact actively rejecting him every day. And there may be others who've loved him without knowing it. Mm-hmm. That's very clear in Matthew. 
So this isn't some wishy-washy liberal universalism I'm preaching here. I think this is just quite straightforwardly the gospel, that we have hope that anybody who has perhaps rejected him in this life because they were never really shown who he was, who've been atheists because the form of Christianity they were shown was so corrupt and corrosive that any decent person would reject it, <laughs> you know, maybe those people will, will have a delightful surprise. And maybe those people who've gone through such dark periods of depression and yeah. disorientation and couldn't believe in God anymore. For oh, absolutely. Reason. Well, there's that very interesting line in, in um, the, the letter of Peter, isn't there, but, that it says that after he died, he went to preach to those in prison. Which doesn't get uh, yeah, on it doesn't much, get preached uh, on. He descended into hell. You know, the whole doctrine of theology is very well that verse. Well, it? yeah, but there it is. I know. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that, that he descended into hell, or whatever we may mean by that, is that is that there is no place so low, no state so dark or depressed into which we can sink, that Jesus cannot descend that far and find us, and that we can't have an encounter with him there. And so this idea of death being this kind of ticking clock and cut off point by which. In some more perhaps conservative Christian circles, it can be this yeah. finality and you're either in or out at the point yeah. of death. Can... Well, yes, I, I think the difficulty with that is it means we, we think we can know from outer words what a person says. We don't know, as it were, what happens in the moment of death. You know, in, you know there's that, you know, between the stirrup and the ground. <laughs> Somebody said a person may may ask and find mercy. And um, there's some wonderful bits in, in Dante, actually, where somebody... You know, Dante has, has popes in hell and he has notorious people who find Christ even in the moment of their death, you know, <laughs> in the joy of heaven. I think we have to say that what God will do is respect our freedom because he died that we should have it and keep it. C.S. Lewis has a really beautiful thing where he says, um, in the end, there's only really going to be two states. There's, we're going to say to God, thy will be done, you know. And his will is, is his infinite love for us and that we should be saved, but saved on his terms. Or he is going to say to us with great regret, I will be done and give us the freedom to turn away. But it's not for us to judge who makes those choices and how they make them. Paul says, I judge not even myself. And as you mentioned earlier, the as in Adam all die and Christ all the made yeah, alive does alive, point yeah. to something. Yeah. Something quite universal, perhaps, in scope. Yeah, that's right. But the hope of which I'm speaking is not some vague you know, wispy, continuous continuation, you know, you know, which makes us sort of drift about the place being, you know, accessible to sort of, you know, Ouija boards and table tappers and stuck in the same old gossipy world that we left. You know, the thing of which I speak is death, real death, in and with Christ, and resurrection, real resurrection in and with Christ, transformative resurrection into the kingdom of love, not an untouched or untransformed vague continuance of who we are now. I think we have to, you know, it's because we know that resurrection is real that we can actually take death seriously and say, that's real too. There's a letting go to be done. Do you think funerals can, to some extent, be evangelistic or, or witnesses to resurrection hope? Without Absolutely. seeming to instrumentalise it? Yes, yes, I think they can. What I think is really important is that, the, the, I mean, there's a delicate balance in taking a funeral. You are always, uh, as a Christian, a, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. We know that the church was born in witness to the resurrection. So you, I don't think you should take a funeral without pointing to Christ, his death and resurrection. Simply that's in the nature of it. But that's very different from using the funeral as a sort of blunt instrument with which to beat other people into your opinion. You know, that's a separate thing altogether. Mm. The place to witness to the resurrection of Christ is in the Gospels itself. In the Gospels, it's, you know, there's always a Bible reading at a funeral. You can choose those, you can let the Gospel speak. 
And I think, you know, pointing to hope, hope for all of us is a joyful thing. There's a nice prayer, you know, I mean, I like the balance of prayers in the actual liturgy, you know. I like, uh, obviously, you know, there's a comforting prayer for everyone, Lord support us all the day long of this troublous life until the shades lengthen, that's beautiful. But then there's, you know, a, 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 a clause isn't there, you know, help us to use aright the time that is left to us. There's a proper way in which mortality concentrates the mind. But I think at the heart of it all is that great hope that Paul articulates, that uh, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Mm. Which poetry would you point to to convey some of the resurrection hope, the hope of, of heaven, new creation? Well, I mean, I, 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 I've got a range of poetry all the way through. Um, I mean, I do include, just because it is one of those glorious, glorious statements of this hope, you know, death be not proud, <laughs> though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, thou art not so, thou art slave to, you know, and that finishes the wonderful, it, it starts with the word death, that poem, and it ends with the word die. <laughs> it's, it's not evading the issue, right? It's not, death is nothing at all. But, of course, it ends with the words, death, thou shalt die. You know, the last enemy to be swallowed up is death. So John Donne, that is, um, it's a great, a great poem of, 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 resurrection hope uh, there are many more and I've you know, chosen you know some and you have some contemporary, contemporary poets ones. as well yes I do very much so who yeah, might yeah. some of those be who people so well um interestingly and I was a good center of the question I've got a I've got a section about prayer and praying and um I've got a Carol Ann Duffy poem in there which in which she talks about the way people which she called prayer you know which she talks about the way in which people sort of pray unconsciously um uh, and uh, I've got some poems by Lucy Shaw, who's a uh, contemporary um, uh, American poet, um, quite a senior figure in the in the um, American poetry scene. Uh, very lucid, uh, simple but profound poetry. There's a couple of hers that I think speak of the resurrection hope. Uh, there's a wonderful one um, called "To What End This First and Final Life." Um, which is about growing old and getting ready to die herself. I mean, she's, you know, in her 80s. Um, and it has a lovely, it has, you know, gentle reference to biblical images, to, you know, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die. But not, it's not heavy. But uh, I'll just read you the end of that. It's just a lovely one. To what end this first and final life? When I surrender, I pray the world will reach out, take me in, grow me as something new. The wheat field flashes its gold invitation. Grow now, flourish, and in good time release abundance, a new crop. Now you can read that as the body going back to the earth and all of that, and it is that, but there's just enough there to give you that hint um, in, 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 the, in the resurrection. So let me read a, one of the... the the issues I deal with, I suppose, throughout this book is the intimacy of grief. Um, the way it's so particular and so personal and so hard for anybody who's not feeling it at that moment to get their mind around it. The sense that we all have, which is perhaps what keeps people away from visiting grief, that we're kind of onlookers, that it's almost shameful to be looking on, that we're seeing more than we ought to be allowed to see. You know, a person's heart is so open and we don't know quite what to do with that. And in this poem, which is called Onlookers, Lucy Shaw starts actually with the idea of Joseph being a kind of embarrassed onlooker at Mary giving birth. And then Mary herself an onlooker at the cross. 
But she turns it around and talks about the way in which the one person who can do what we all want to do, which is to know a person's grief, including our own from the inside, is, is Christ himself. So this is just called Onlookers. Behind our shield of health, each of us must sense another's anguish second-hand. We are agnostic in the face of dying. So Joseph felt, observer of the push and splash of birth. And even Mary, mourner, under the cross's arm. Only their son and God's, in bearing all our griefs, felt them first-hand climbing himself our rugged hill of pain. His nerves, enfleshed, carried the messages of nails, the tombs chill. His ever-open wounds still blazon back to us the penalty we never bore. And heaven gleams for us more real, crossed with that human blood. 